Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm honored and delighted to have uh, a forensic psychiatrist uh, expert on terrorism, Dr. Jacob Holzer, with me this morning. We're going to be discussing the book that that Dr. Holzer um, created, uh, edited, I should say, with a number of other editors. And uh, in this age of so much gun violence and uh, terrorist acts around the world, uh, there really is it was and is a need for people to understand uh, more about this subject and create some new paradigms and, and approaches. And before we get started, Dr. Holzer, I just want to read a little bit of your bio. Um, following the, your service in the U.S. Air Force, and thank you for your service, uh, you went to medical school, interned at Tufts, psychiatry residence at Yale, clinical neuroscience at Yale, and at Beth Israel Harvard University. Uh, you've been providing direct clinical care in neuropsychiatry, psychopharmacology, and geriatric uh, psychiatry, in addition to consulting in forensic psychiatry and legal medicine. And that's how we first met. You gave a presentation to uh, the program in psychiatry and the law, uh, if I remember correctly. And it was like, wow, I want to talk to you. And you're like, I'm really interested in what you're up to, Steve. And, that, and then thank you for inviting me to contribute a chapter uh, to this important volume. I'll just say a few more things. You're award-winning, you're board certified and in general in forensic psychiatry, uh, and you've developed a real interest in uh, forensic mental health and national security. And you've given numerous presentations to the U.S. Naval War College, the USMC, that's the Marine Corps University, uh, yes. USMC, USMC National Intelligence University, never knew that existed, Defense Intelligence Agency, and the FBI. And you uh, co-edited this incredible book called Lone Actor Terrorism, an Integrated Framework. And before, we, before I turn it over to you, um, Dr. Holzer, I can't help but mention that the forward were, was uh, two forwards by Andrew McCabe and John Wyman. So as we get into the discussion, you can talk about how, how uh, they, you came to ask them and they came to offer that. So sure, let's go sure. back in time to how did you come up with this book and why did you feel like it was so important? Sure, sure. Well, Steve, um, just to begin, you know, thank you for having me uh, in this interview and talking about the subject matter. Um, so it's really an honor, you know, uh, to be here and talk about it. And um, yeah, basically, uh, you know, for many years, so this sort of, uh, <laughs> this interest came about uh, in a little bit of a haphazard way. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to think of it as my sort of personally kind of coming full circle. So I started out, you know, after high school. So really very young, um, you know, and uh, didn't have a clue what to do. And, you know, I went into the Air Force and uh, I was I was sort of interested in that whole area of like national security and international relations. And I was actually thinking a little bit about that area, mm -hmm. uh, probably not politics. I'm not good at that area so much, but I was right. really interested in international relations. And somehow, I don't even know how it happened, but I kind of shifted my interests. I was in the Air Force. I started to think more about, you know, I kind of like biology and chemistry, mm -hmm. psychology, and maybe I would take the roots of that. And I was actually thinking of psychology to begin with, getting out of the Air Force, and I was thinking of clinical psychology, and I actually heard that was too hard to get into. And so instead of that, I pursued medical school and got into medical school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, 
you know, I got interested really in mental health and psychiatry and neurology, that whole area. Sure. And much of my career, I mean, I've, I've sort of been in clinical psychiatry and medicine for um, a few decades. Okay. Give or so take. You're Probably very, about. very experienced and accomplished. So talk to us yeah, about thanks, lone thanks. actor terrorism. There's so much to cover. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tell us about how my, the book came about. Uh, certainly. So over the course of my career, uh, I've been doing forensic psychiatry as a subspecialty. And really years ago, um, really saw a opening. I think there was a gap in the field of forensic mental health, clinical and forensic mental health, and looking at national security applications. So one area specifically has been lone actor terrorism. And just generally, so this is sort of a generic view of this, um, mm -hmm. that lone actor terrorism is one of those areas that's, um, that I became interested in studying. It's an area that is really not well understood, although now there's more research going into it, right. but there's sort of a limited number of uh, people in academics who focus on this area and a limited literature, but it's an important area because it is an area that, again, I sort of stress the complexity of it, um, but it involves, to some degree, clinical aspects, sure. psychology, behavioral issues, um, developmental issues, along with an intersection of a number of other areas, non-clinical areas, but things that have to do with the internet, yeah. um, with law enforcement and criminal history, and a area I became interested in as, as part of my research into this area was that many of these people um, have some degree of vulnerability and can be subject to influence by others. So the, the whole area of um, parallels with uh, vulnerability, you know, getting drawn into things like cults or gangs sure, and subject to propaganda and influence from others right, becomes really important. And I think very much factors into that group. Yeah. And um, I might add that, that uh, people were calling it lone wolf terrorism, but it was not something that anybody wanted to like glorify or you know, create imagery that might entice a vulnerable young person to wanting to be that. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to comment on is uh, the idea of leaderless resistance that I think was yeah. first a military idea in the anti-communism age of the 1950s. And then the white supremacist beam uh, said we have to be do this leaderless resistance. Why? Because the FBI and others were infiltrating these, gr these groups and can disrupt everything versus having unique little cells where right. people didn't know what the others were doing. And general ideas were being put out over the internet, like here's a way to bake bombs or here's Here's an idea of driving a truck into a crowd at a parade, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very much so. So there really is a important history, you know, um, really going back decades. That um, you know is sort of a pathway towards what we see now as really a growing uh, concern about. Uh, both more discreetly lone actor terrorism incidents. But I think it's worth discussing, you know, more broadly, there's uh, mass violence that can occur. And it's sort of in a number of contexts. And it's really unfortunate because we've seen examples of this. Uh, you know, we're into July 2022, and uh, 
in the recent months on one incident after another. And yeah, so, there have been over 300 since January 1st, I, I, yes, I believe. Yes. 300. Yeah. It's, and, you know, the contagion effect seems to be also taking place. And I think the right. media ha has some role in this, uh, too, that right. we can discuss. Right. I think it's worth discussion. Yeah, you know what I've what I've seen in the media uh, lately, which is good. This is a positive. Is sort of the tendency not to name the offender, mm -hmm. if possible, that the offender remains uh, sort of anonymous as much as possible. I mean, that usually doesn't happen. His his or her name pops up at some point. Yeah, but more but focus on the victims and yeah, yeah. The focus should be on the victims and families, and um, it is worth a discussion about. I know in our book we tended to focus on ideology-driven terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's been there's been this growing uh, number of incidents that have occurred. Mm -hmm. You know, in the hundreds just in this year, since January. And that even though the book um, has focused a little more on ideology-driven terror, terrorism, terror events, mm -hmm. and I, I'm happy to talk a little bit about definitions. Um, you know, more broadly, there's been incidents that uh, may not fit exactly with the definition of terrorism, but mm -hmm. they can still terrorize right. the public, and they can accomplish that. There may not be a clear ideology related to it, but there's been a number of incidents. Um, you know, there's racial and hatred-driven incidents, which right. actually, in my view, fits with lone actor terrorism. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, there's school shootings that, that have been occurring. Um there's mass violence incidents where people will scratch their head and wonder why did that even occur? What drove that? And, you know, it's sad that these things have been reoccurring. Um, so I think it's worth a discussion sure. about sort of the underpinnings of that. Yep. So uh, obviously my background is cults. So social psychology uh, is very heavy in my analyses of things. And um, so my chapter is more on, on online radicalization and talking about uh, my influence continuum, which is what the name of this podcast is, uh, and the bite model but also just how social media is taking data from people and, and bad actors are buying this data on the dark web and targeting vulnerable people and inciting them and flaring them uh, and as well as connecting them with other extremists. But let's, let's go, can I ask you to do some definitions of what is terrorism and? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think classically, and again, there's, this gets controversial as that's in, in my, my field, Jake. <laughs> yeah. I guess Controversy. not ever straightforward. Right. Um, but in my talking with people and reading and research in this area, um, the sort of tighter classical definition of terrorism is an act of violence or a threat. Doesn't have to actually even occur, but a threat of violence. And it can be to an individual or to uh, more, more commonly in the public, um, where the goal really is, you know, I mean, it, it can cause the outcome of violence to individuals, but the broader goal is to inflict psychic harm, damage, you know, terror mm. to a greater population. They mm -hmm. get scared, right. they may change their behavior, um, and that that'll have a ripple effect within the public domain. So that is kind of the classical definition, and then that you can subdivide into group terrorism. Mm -hmm. You know, and over the years, there's been many groups, there's no loss of number of different groups. 
So the Bader Meinhof gang mm-hmm. back a long time ago. Right. And all sorts of other groups sort of related, uh, you know, more to politically driven or wing, right wing, left wing terrorism, religious, religiously uh, sure. dominated. So Islamist extremism like Al- Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. ISIS could be examples. Um, more on the forefront in recent years has been more right-wing, uh, white supremacist extremism, uh, spurning group violence. So that becomes yet another example of group, uh, group violence, group terrorism. Now, sort of another subset are individuals who are influenced one way or the other and then decide, and this takes on a whole other framework of psychology with individuals who um, are potentially maybe prone to really absorb a lot of this stuff. And then somewhere in their mind decide, um, you know, it's time they've got to take matters in their own hands and they've got to act. Mm -hmm. So in the setting of, you know, we're, we're talking, Steve, about, let's say, uh, political or religious stressors, um, extremist views, you know, a lot of propaganda and rhetoric out there, all sorts of stuff. And state actors, let's not forget that. China, yes. Russia, Iran, North Korea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They yeah, want certainly. to see, you know, they <laughs> want to be able to tell their uh, citizens you think America's great? People can't even send their kids to school and be safe. So there's that right. angle too. Right, right. Absolutely. That that some of this that may be uh, homegrown, potentially homegrown or, you know, sort of clandestinely influenced by some outside state actor um works into that actor's benefit yeah uh they're not opposed to this right if there's no chaos over here right i think we've seen that yeah i think it's uh, really clear uh and uh frankly uh american covert operations have been involved with using front groups to do violence in order to destabilize our enemies so it's not just a black and white, all or nothing right. thing. Right. The right. the idea is, you know, on a certain level, the ends justify the means. If we are that afraid of communism taking over, then you know we can we can justify it doing things like waterboarding. You know, yeah. When, yeah. even when it has no effect uh, in any constructive way, right? Except to inflict well, terrorist and uh, ideas and. Yeah, yeah. You know, but but I think you're raising really important points that this all speaks to, you know, just how complicated this area is. Mm-hmm. That it's not exactly one person acting in a vacuum right. to create some chaos or violence. That, you know, it's multi-layered. There's sort of other things going on. And in fact, um, the book... Um, basically emphasizes this, that, you know, it's worth almost stepping back and getting sort of a wide angle view sure. of kind of what's involved here. You know, that, that there's, um, there's sort of a number of things, a number of influences and contexts, ideologies, and that, um, to really understand, to really appreciate, you know, this phenomenon, you know, sure. because when it happens in the news, it makes, you know, it, it, it takes center stage, you know, a lot of, a lot of focuses on that event. It creates a lot of, um, you know, sort of aftermath, fallout. Right. And so really looking at that process more broadly is important. Yeah. So I, you know, in my work with cults, and I have done some uh, work with de-radicalization as well, uh, f- uh, folks on the spectrum 
uh, seem to be more susceptible or vulnerable if they're not educated about um, how the internet works and how people can misrepresent themselves, maybe meet uh, friends playing video games. And we know from neuroscience that our brain starts acting like this person is a friend after you play video games for 15 minutes or more. Uh, you know, so, but you don't know who this, this person is. It could be a bot even, and you, <laughs> you don't know. But the point is, is people can have situational stressors, but they can also have uh, psychological uh, vulnerabilities that, uh, that make them more uh, susceptible to right. uh, appeals of uh, instant friendship, automatic structure, hope. You know, join right. us, be part of the solution, not the problem. And then the next thing, they're in QAnon or some spinoff where they think the whole world is aliens, reptiles, you know, who, who are shapeshifters or. Yeah. 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 I think that's very accurate. That's an accurate view mm -hmm. regarding that, that vulnerability. Um, when I researched, so one of the chapters in the book, and that stemmed from, you know, I did some basic research looking at the literature, and I looked at high-profile lone actor, you know, more classical terrorist acts. Yep. So the ones that I looked at, you know, all of them had made the news, national news or international news, and um, they had some sort of ideology linked. But as a group, it was really broad. Right. So it could have been Islamist and right wing and, uh, you know, like anti-abortion, sort of you mix them all together. Yep. So kind of a colorful group of people. Um, and I found that, you know, it was interesting, at least in, in open source material that I reviewed, that almost everyone in that group had something clinical going on. Mm -hmm. There was some mention of something clinical now that doesn't mean and i think it's important to distinguish it it doesn't mean the clinical issue drove the behavior right um you know it's it's one factor out right. there and it doesn't mean that they're not criminally responsible because they have that clinical issue but what i found and this becomes an area of real interest um is that, you know, uh, there may have been some sort of mood disorder mm -hmm. or developmental disorder. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of ADD, ADHD, dyslexic, where people were bullied a lot or, and, and well, had trouble, you know, really being accepted by peer groups. That yes, seems to play yes. a role too. Yeah. So in the background... Actually, there's that clinical piece um, fairly commonly, you know, there's sort of a developmental context yep. that, that actually tends to involve um, some sort of background of conflict, abuse, uh, either a household where abuse is occurring. And I include corporal punishment, Jake, in that if they were raised being... Uh, hit with a belt or a paddle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that would constitute abuse. Yes. Basically. So, yeah, you know, there's there's a number of these factors that are just very common to this subgroup of people that uh, go on to commit violence. Right. That may be connected with an ideology. What you find a lot less of, mm -hmm. and maybe maybe very little of are people who are uh, sort of well-integrated in society. You know, they, they were pretty well-integrated going through school, um, you know, and were able to maintain other relationships. They had a healthier lifestyle, more balanced. Um, now, as a group, those people may, uh, you know, may be sort of extremist-leaning. They may think about all of these issues, you know, about, let's say, extremism or religion or whatever, but, but they may not act on it. 
they may encourage other people to act on it mm. or they may, um, you know, they may be thinking, you know, they've got a protest. They could, they could be, they could be active in leading a group. So they could belong to a group, but I'm talking about people who go on to individually commit sort of mass violence. I haven't really found that sort of connection. So I, I think what I'm getting at is that there seems to be a more defined subgroup of people that are more vulnerable towards this pathway of mass violence. Yeah, I would add um, uh, the social influence model by law professor Emeritus Alan Shefflin, who uh, talks about the influencee and their vulnerabilities, but also the influencer or the predator or the predatory organization and kind of the who, what, when, where, how, and what's the result. And my take, and I'm biased, I admit it, because I was that person who was from an intact family, highly educated, you know, good peer group, but I got deceived at a vulnerable moment from my girlfriend dumping me into a front group of the moon cult. And within a few months, I was being trained to die on command or kill on command for God. Mm. But I, I had no such uh, mentality <laughs> to even think about violence. I was anti-war in Vietnam, etc. But the, so for me, I, I, I have that bias of always looking, how did the person get from A to Z? And is it just internally generated or is it because they're visiting websites or they're interacting with people, et cetera? So I'm more leaning to that social influence, which is what my chapter is about, right. obviously, right. Uh, in your book. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. so you know, Steve, it's, it's interesting looking at that process. I mean, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. There was some, and I think I was speaking to, it's interesting because, again, you know, um, this gets into it in more detail if you really drill down. I think what I'm getting at are individuals who may have that vulnerability, but they don't really get pulled into some sort of a structure or group. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a different process. Yeah, I'm not talking, of, I, my take, um, forgive me, Jake, but I, my take isn't that they're being pulled into a group, it's that they're being influenced, they're being targeted and influenced by a state actor, could be former military intelligence actors of the United States government who know psyops uh, by people using hypnosis covertly. Mm -hmm. They're not, and and it they're being directed, although it's not a centralized thing. The general idea is fourth generation warfare, fifth generation warfare, where uh, the goal is disorientation, confusion, delegitimizing experts and science and institutions, and saying we need a new structure. We need we need to burn it down. Uh, society down so that we can start something new. Right. But I don't right. think these people are self-generating these these uh, ideas. I really do think they're being influenced, although not in the old way before the internet, where there was people right. getting together and right. you know, writing up manifestos and handing them to people. Yes. Yeah. No. No. I I understand. I know exactly. Yeah. You know, what you're describing. Yeah. So tell um, us how you, you got Andrew McCabe. And uh, I believe John Wyman is, is an instructor at Quantico uh, of the FBI. Is that, am I remembering yes. correctly? Well, um, yeah. Um, Deputy Director McCabe and um, yeah, Mr. Wyman are retired. Okay. Of former FBI, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think the operative word was uh, retired. Okay. Uh, I think it would have been different. I, I I think it would have been much more complicated for active uh, people in the Good FBI point. to write. Okay. Um, but they were really gracious enough to contribute to the book, and it was really quite valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, 
early on um, and basically it was just part of my work uh, in researching and connecting with people. You know, I wanted the book to be kind of eclectic, right. multidisciplinary. And so I really made an effort to reach out, um, you know, to people in uh, academic settings, um, law enforcement, the military, intelligence, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then uh, actually government to some very limited degree, you uh-huh. know, congressional, that didn't work out too well. And you um, you have the oldest and most prestigious publisher for this book, Oxford University Press. Um, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it 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 really wasn't you know an honor. Um, I was honored to be able to associate with people like uh, Deputy Director McCabe and retired FBI uh, John Wyman has been invaluable. Mm in, you know, his contribution, both of them. And, you know, part of the issue is reaching out to people to get their input into this area. I mean, it's it's complicated. And the whole point was I did not want the book to be just a clinical. I mean, I'm coming at it from a clinical point of view, right. but it's much broader than that. And... Um, yeah, so they were gracious to make that contribution. So who um, who's the target audience for this? I know academics who are who are researching, but who else uh, should be uh, getting this book and reviewing it, reading it, sharing right. it? Right. Yeah. So basically, and that that was the goal of the book to make it uh, available to a really broad audience. And so I think clinical and forensic mental health professionals uh, potentially should have some interest in this area. At least some people will have interest in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, because we're looking at mass violence and sort of the underpinnings of that. Um, The academic community, Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a number of centers that really look at terrorism from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it doesn't have to be clinical, right? Uh, but, you know, places that do security studies, international relations, politics, mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement. I mean, I off the top of my head, you know, places like potentially Georgetown, George Washington University, mm-hmm. Harvard Kennedy School. There's, you know, Yale, there's sort of, but that's just a handful. There's a number of places that potentially could have interests not related to the clinical aspect so much as sort of the broader context of the book. Yep. And then certainly the law enforcement and intelligence communities, um, you know, this is more of a practical application mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of a really important area that, you know, within law enforcement, intelligence, the military, and uh, legislative, uh, right. you know, branches that they would have some interest. Uh, it has some application to their work. Right. So, so I, I do want to just comment. Uh, we have a gun problem in the United States. There's 20 million estimated AR-15 assault rifles, 20 million. And yet, uh, Putin's Russia, you'll be arrested if you have a bullet in your car. You'll be sent to jail. Same with China and other authoritarian countries. But they seem to really want Americans to have a lot of guns and to hurt each other and and kill each other. But I think, um, would you say that that the mass shooting events, guns and the... Proliferation of guns is only one part of the problem versus if we just need to get rid of all assault rifles and then we won't have, you know, these violent mass attacks. Right, right. If it only were that simple. Yeah. Yeah. So it speaks to a very complex issue. Um, and, you know, I can talk about personally. Um, I look at it, there's sort of a couple of different layers to this. Mm -hmm. So I think 
on one level, um, we've got a, a crazy, insane number of guns in this country. It's absolutely insane. And, you know, I understand respect for the amendments. Everyone should have a healthy respect for the First Amendment, Second Amendment. But I think um, we're at a point where it's gone uh, way beyond reality. And uh, my personal view is with the Second Amendment, you know, it's important, but, you know, you have to keep it within its boundaries of what was really intended and how much it's gone beyond that. You know, because one could argue that the Second Amendment should let someone purchase an artillery piece. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. That, that should be covered by the Second Amendment. So, um, you know, I think I, I think uh, the gun proliferation problem, and and let me define that a little bit more because I think there's a starting point with military style assault weapons, mm -hmm. which, um, and again, this is my personal view. You know, I understand a lot of people wouldn't share this. Yeah, but you're also but, a forensic psychiatrist who edited a book on loan actor terrorism. So I think your your points of view are very important and valid. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, under, I, I understand, um, you know, but personal and professional view is that um, M, you know, whatever, uh, AR-15s, M-16s. Mm -hmm. um, but those type of weapons sort of squarely belong with the military and law enforcement and have zero place in the public. Yeah. And in most developed countries, you know, they're not available. Um, you know, I and and I've done, uh, you know, a fair amount of weapons training and shooting weapons um, in, you know, when I was in the Air Force and just uh, out of interest, you know, as a hobby. But, you know, there's just no place for those style assault weapons. Yeah, you don't need design. to have assault ref weapons to kill prairie dogs. That's what they're arguing, that they need right. to shoot well, 100 rounds in three seconds to kill yeah, a prairie dog. Uh, yeah, right, right. That's that's a lame excuse. Right. Um, you know, the fact is they were designed to be used in war. Right. Uh, they're designed to kill a lot of people rapidly. Right. And for things like sports and hunting and target shooting yep. and home defense, there's other weapons that are better. A hundred percent. And I, I, I had the idea that, you know, because there are gun clubs where they have to be licensed, we can write legislation to give five assault weapons that people, if they people really need to feel what it feels like to shoot a hundred rounds in three seconds, they can rent oh, the gun be. and, you know, shoot a lot of right. rounds and leave, but not right. have them in your trunk of the car and in your apartment. Cause you're ready for Armageddon. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I fully, I fully agree. Um, you know, so that's assault weapons. And frankly, you know, when there was that that period of an assault weapons ban, uh, there was a clear reduction in mass violence. Yep. I mean, it's, you know, it's... it's Yeah, look at Australia. They banned it and went down right. almost completely. Right. right, right, in other countries. But we have the data back, you know, during the assault weapons ban. Right the numbers really dropped. Where it gets complicated, and again, I think it's important because, you know, politically, people try to make this either a gun issue or a mental health issue, mm -hmm. and they're, they're missing the point mm. and not addressing the, the real problem, that it's multi-layered, that you need to think about these things. Assault weapons are a major component um, if there was an assault weapons ban, and again, we're not talking about banning weapons. 
you know, it's assault weapons that are, I think, the big issue here. Um, you know, it would it would drive the numbers down. It wouldn't result in like zero right. mass violence events. And I think the public, you know, and, and the government regulators, people need to recognize that, you know, unfortunately, um, there are individuals that will uh, be influenced, they're vulnerable, they'll be influenced, sure. there may be a clinical issue, you know, they're going to act violently. And, um, you know, they may use a car or truck or a knife. Sure. Um, there can be other means of sure. operationalizing violence. But I think, you know, it's it's not uh, everything or nothing. You know, it's what can we do to increase safety? Right. It's not going to be 100%. Yep. But the public good matters. And I'm very disappointed at the recent Supreme Court decision around uh, allowing more concealed, you know, weapons carrying. Yeah. I mean, we're in Massachusetts, we had one of the strictest things. And I do admit I have a, a license for concealed carry, which I got after 9-11. <laughs> and the last time I took the gun out and carried it was when uh, the marathon bomber was reportedly in the next town over and we were being told to stay in our houses. I, I took it out and uh, carried it around for till they, they arrested the, the perpetrator. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I'm, tr I, I'm adding that just because I'm not like totally against guns for self-protection, but rarely should they ever be used um, except for, you know, sporting or target practice. Right. But, I think there's a great, yeah, Steve, there's a great need for, and, and I think, you know, I think a majority, I mean, I really think the majority of Americans recognize this issue. Yeah. That there's a need for, and this is you, this is discussed, you know, in the media, but there's really a need for just common sense rules and regulations to allow the Second Amendment to be adhered to, but not to the crazy point where uh, we've got, I don't know, I don't even know the numbers. It's at least one or two guns per American. Yeah, there's over now. 400 million guns in the United States. Um, and the NRA, yeah. I put the NRA actually in my book, The Cult of Trump, because they had 5 million believers, and they were just using that one single issue to push why Trump should be elected and, you know, paying off a lot of politicians to help them with their yeah, elections. It's, it's a narrow view that really is not in the public interest. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, there's arguments that are made, you know, the whole crazy, you know, I, I mean, it's an absurd argument that you know, what stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Yeah, the statistics don't, don't work that way. Yeah, when you look at Uvalde, just what happened in Uvalde completely uh, cancels out that argument. Right. Because you had like many, many good guys with guns and nothing happened. Well, they didn't do their, their, their training. They didn't have proper communication. There was a million things that went wrong there. But, you know, the, 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 there can be some profiling of people who have clinical issues like anger, depression, impulsivity, <laughs> you know, and who write things on social media or tell their classmates Things like, you know, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and kill someone and people will still follow me. And dangerousness right. should be like, right. flag. <laughs> right, right. Well, that, yeah, that speaks to, you know, uh, that influence because there's going to be people out there who take that literally. Yeah. You know, that gives them permission to say, well, maybe if I do shoot someone, I probably can get away with it. Well, Kyle Wittenhouse with his assault rifle, I thought that was so 
disturbing to say the least. And and celebrate. Uh, he was given a job by Republicans, I think, uh, to come to Washington and celebrate as a hero. He was not a hero. He was a murderer. You would think if someone's running around in public with an AR-15 loaded, locked and loaded, ready to go, you know, that, that there's something wrong with that picture. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So I'm, uh, we, we have about uh, 10 minutes or so, and I would like to um, just have you highlight some of the things you learned, things that future research that you think needs to happen, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Well, um, yeah, again, um, you know, I think this is a uh, important area, complicated, multifaceted. Mm -hmm. When we talk about terrorism, you know, and lone actor terrorism, um, there's, there's sort of a number of other areas that uh, I'm interested in more from an academic viewpoint. And I uh, will be planning to kind of look, look at more closely. Um, and, and I think, you know, these can impact on, uh, on us publicly, uh, our, our freedoms and, uh, you know, our way of living. Right. So, um, anything specific you, know, you care to share at this point? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about lone actor terrorism, but you know, there's sort of a number of subgroups or a number of other groups that really present risk to the public. Mm -hmm. And um, I keep these groups a little bit separate, you know, just I'm looking at more details. Mm -hmm. But obviously the whole issue of school shooting right. is an important area that really needs to be understood better, mm -hmm. you know, and, and practically steps taken to really try to reduce that risk. Yeah. Um, you know, mass violence where it's not clear what exactly drove that, mm. you know, what happened in Highland Park mm. and in a number of other places. Um, you know, uh, there's some other examples going back to the Aurora movie theater shooter, mm. you know, could be another example. Um, I'm not convinced is that purely a clinical issue that may or may not be, there may be more to that, yep. but, but, that's sort of an issue that really needs to be looked at. Yep. Uh, there's a real concern about extremism in this country. And I think the whole, again, it gets complicated, the whole issue of extremism. On the left and, and the right, not just yes, the right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of looking at it more from like a bipolar yep. <laughs> picture, left and right. Mm -hmm. But the issue is that... Um, you know, it's it sort of again gets to preserving freedom of speech, but at what point does hate speech become insightful and drive violence? And at what point does domestic uh, hate crimes become domestic terrorism? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, is an issue that I think is very active and really needs to be examined more closely, right? And maybe changed. You know. Uh, Frankly, domestic uh, hate crimes and terrorism, to me, really feel a little bit like two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. But that becomes another issue to look at in this country. Yeah, I, ju um, I just came back from Lyon, France, to the International Academy of Law and Mental Health, where um, people such as yourself and myself are trying to look at that intersection of mental health and the law. And I know you were going to present there, but COVID and other things happened, but there was presentations yeah, there. And I guess I'm mentioning it because I heard a very interesting presentation about sexting uh, with young people showing their bodies to each other, et cetera. And 
uh, a study was done on social learning theory applied to it and social learning theory, but I learned something new about the formula that can be constructed for contagion effects, like somebody mm. sitting at home watching a news story, feeding, uh, you know, an existing thing in the person's right. mind. So that's right. an interesting uh, new area of uh, research. I think that would be very valuable. Because, and then recently, Jake, I heard A Hidden Brain. It's one of my favorite podcasts on social psychology. And there was a Harvard, I believe, Harvard psychologist, um, you know, presenting about how our brains shift when we're in a group, when we're in a crowd, and that things we would never do individually, we do in a crowd because of this contagion effect. And I yeah. can't, I couldn't help but think, you know, on the internet, there can be a simulated effect, like there's a group, even though there's no one else in the room with you, you're sitting in your apartment with a computer. Right, right. But potentially, you know, yeah, no, this is really a critical area, I think, that really needs to be understood, studied, mm -hmm. you know, and there's probably very little that's really understood about it. But you're right, you know, you get that individual. And Steve, I think you do study this whole area. Yeah. But looking at, you know, an individual who may have some predispositions, some vulnerabilities one way or the other, mm -hmm. but they're on the internet and they're communicating somehow. And it may be through, uh, you know, it could be through political messages. Right. It could be through sexting. It could be through gambling and all right. sorts of things. And they're told, you know, they're doing this shared with, you know, like a hundred other people. And there's like other yeah, video gaming people. Right. Yeah. And they don't know for all they know, there's only one other person communicating with them. And that person may be 10,000 miles away. Right. And, and the person sitting on the couch, the recipient of this, would not have a clue. They wouldn't know. They, right. may, they may just buy into, you know, whatever they're told. And if it happens repeatedly and, and forcefully enough, uh, yeah, they can really start believing. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a modern day issue that, you know, 50 years ago was a non-issue. Right, totally. And so, uh, I, I, I've been listening to the Center for Humane Technologies podcast, Your Undivided Attention, and they, they really are looking at the effects on people uh, of being on social media and even interviewing former executives at Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, et cetera, uh, who were talking about how they can tweak the algorithms to s get people more attentive so their ad rev revenues go up. And so there's this whole, f you know, regulation of platforms that needs to take place and not just data mining for keywords. Right. Right. But, but there's an effect on our brains from yeah. being online. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, you know, and I'm not, I'm not an expert in this at all, mm. but I'm sure Madison Avenue has paid some attention to this area because, you know, uh, thousand percent. Uh, this, this fits with what the whole point of advertising you're trying to influence behavior. Um, exactly. You know, to buy a product. <laughs> no, exactly. So, and, and you know, capitalism is good, but it needs regulation. If it's laissez-faire and we don't care the harm we're causing, we can cause an obesity epidemic by advertising too much without giving the proper uh, education about how many calories you should eat, <laughs> what's right. healthy food. Right, right. It may be, you know, it may be in a company's financial best interest, but in the public's health interests, it may run counter to right. that. Right. So, and we saw yeah. that with tobacco, and but tobacco's making another another run in it with vaping, 
that may be even worse than smoking cigarettes. And we see this with global climate warming, where they, they, mm -hmm. they want to introduce phony uh, experts who you know are contradicting the 97% of all climate scientists because they want to sell more oil and, and coal. Yeah. It's really yeah. sad. It's unfortunate, you know, uh, I think here in the States, there's a tendency, and you know, it could be, it, it could be good because of the First Amendment and freedom of speech, mm -hmm. but people have a lot of opinions. Yeah. And um, it's almost like no matter what the topic, you're going to get like opposing opinions and they're going to, you know, take sides. And I guess the issue is, you know, we're in an environment that's really, uh, unfortunately, really very polarized um, yep. with all the recent events. Yep. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how healthy all of that is. You know, that freedom of speech, it, it uh Again, I'm not, there is no I'm not free speech without free responsibility. Speech. The law says, you know, about not screaming fire right. in a crowded theater if, if there isn't one because of stampedes right. and potential harm for people. And I, I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, life is complex. So we need to avoid simplistic solutions or approaches to complex problems. Yeah. Or, or the tendency for people to just get to buy into some line of thinking. You know, it's almost like a lot of people have given up on critical thinking. You know, that, yeah. that let me look at what's happening and figure out, you know, there's two sides to some discussion and where, where does it really lie? And, you know, is there sort of a balance here? Right. And there's sort of somehow almost in society this tendency in the last several years to almost pick sides and oh i think polarized. it's deliberate that's my thesis in the cult of trump that there are forces that have been driving this to accelerate the demise of the united states so other countries can uh invade ukraine and 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 take over taiwan and other things like that I definitely, you know, that's my strong opinion. Jake Holzer, thank you for this amazing contribution. And, and personally, I want to thank you for inviting me to contribute a chapter because uh, the whole cult mind control thesis is still uh, not widely understood or accepted uh, academically. And, uh, you know, continued success. Uh, and I hope that uh, we get a lot more calls for interviews with you um, oh. and, and other, other contributors of the book can share. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of powerful, important information in this volume. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you, Steve. Thank you for contributing, but also thank you for having me here to to talk. Oh, my pleasure. You know, to interview and um, and I would be remiss. Yeah, much I would be remiss to to not acknowledge John uh, Kevin Atak and Monsi Shaw and uh, Simran Mahalta, who helped me with my chapter because uh, it's it was a lot of work. Oxford's not an easy uh, publishing company to work with. Whoa. Yeah. We need more details yeah. and references from three, whatever. Uh, anyway, it's, we did it. So, it's a hurdle. Yeah. Right. Thanks so much. Well, all right. Good. Thank you. Thanks again for having me on. Yeah. Pleasure. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. 
These books are a culmination of 45 plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three and a half hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag I got out and join our online community at igotout.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.